Hi there, Peter Williams here. Hey, did you ever wonder how RCR is funded? Well, we're grassroots funded, which means everyday Kiwis contribute to keeping us on air. If you want us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives and a reality check you won't get anywhere else, then please visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Aziz Abu Sara lives between Israel and South Carolina in the United States. He lost a brother in the first intifada. He moved from being an angry activist to becoming a peace activist, calling for understanding on both sides. Aziz's educational and conflict resolution work throughout the world has earned him the titles of National Geographic Explorer and TED Fellow. He's written opinion pieces for the New York Times, Washington Post, Al-Quds, Haaretz, and has been published by National Geographic, CNN, TED, and Al-Arabia. He's been named one of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world by the Royal Strategic Center in Jordan each year since 2010. His book, Crossing Boundaries, A Traveler's Guide to World Peace, was released in July 2020. Aziz Abu Sara joins us now from Melbourne, Australia. Aziz, welcome to Reality Check Radio. Thanks for giving us some time. Thank you for having me. Okay, so can we start with you telling us about what happened, you know, the tragedy that I mentioned in the intro, uh, the death. What happened there? Yeah, my my brother was killed when I was 10 years old. Um, he was arrested a year earlier on suspicion of throwing rocks at Israeli soldiers. He was arrested from home. And he refused to confess to the charges, so he was beaten up until he would. And uh, it took around or more than two weeks for that to happen. By then, he had internal injuries. Um, he was released from prison a little less than a year later. And by the time he got out of prison, his health has gotten uh, pretty bad. We took him to a hospital. He had a surgery. But it was too late to do anything, and he died in the hospital at age 19, and I was 10 years old then, um, which, wow. yeah, as you can imagine, not, uh, not an easy thing for a 10 years old to to go through, see your brother being killed. Um, so so I grew up, grew up with that being the, the most defining moment of my life. So the... Reaction of a ten-year-old is to dislike very dislike very much whoever did that to your brother. Right. Um, explain those feelings if you don't mind. Yeah, I think it feels like when you're ten years old, you 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 know, when somebody kills your brother, you don't think. Let me think about this logically. Let me think. What is the right thing to do here? That that's not realistic and. Taysir was uh, more than just a brother. I'm the youngest of seven. He was the one just older than me, and we had nine years gap. Right. So he was the person in charge of my life. He was the person who took me to school the first day. He was the person who, you know, took care of me. And so I was very angry. I was very bitter. And uh, to me, vengeance seemed the only way. It felt like there is no other choice but to revenge. And if you don't do that, you are a terrible brother. And so for eight years, this was my uh, my focus in life. I became very active politically. I um, I joined the youth movement. I was throwing rocks. I was writing pamphlets. I was 
you know, tons of things, organizing, um, whatever I could do in this way of uh, of revenge. Yeah, throwing rocks. Okay, we used to throw rocks as kids, probably not in the same situation. But I- I'm just trying to get my head around how really dangerous that is. I know it's defiant and it's some kind of a weapon. Um, and the proportionality of the response seems to me to be way out of line. Am I right? Yeah, first time I threw rocks, I was eight years old, uh, right. seven or eight. I didn't know what it really meant. I didn't even do it for political reasons first time. I was a young kid, like you say, a lot of kids do it when they're like six, seven, eight. Um, and first time I did that, I did it against my neighbors because I didn't know the whole Israel-Palestine thing. Eventually, I found out you have to throw rocks at people who don't know where you live. Uh, and the first time I did it, that got a response. I was probably eight years old and I was shot at. And it's terrifying. Uh, but you think you're invincible when you are seven or eight years old. You don't think anything will happen to you uh, until you eventually see someone who gets killed, which I got to see that by the time I was nine years old, before my brother was killed, our neighbor um, next door neighbor was killed. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's horrifying, um, to be shot at. And that has happened many, many times in, in my life. Yeah. So firing at an eight year old for throwing rocks, it's a bit over the top, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I would think what generates that sort of response that that's anger and, and, and hatred to think that that is, acceptable i'm just what i'm trying to do is because you know we're we're down here bottom of the world we, we, we observe these things we don't a few of us have had direct um experience but hardly any we're trying to i guess get our heads around how how that could be how, how that could be generated that sort of i don't know um aggressive behavior i think we live in a reality over there that it's an us versus them and Everyone in the country thinking that way. It's us versus them. It's Israelis versus Palestinians. And at some point, dehumanization becomes the, the name of the game. Demonization becomes the name of the game where we stop seeing the other as a human. And so you can easily demonize an eight years old if you think that eight years old. And I've heard that even recently if you from, from people I know where they say, well, that eight years old might grow up to become a terrorist. That eight-year-old is already on that path if they're already throwing rocks. Um, so you, you can you can always demonize the other and get to the point where you stop seeing an eight-years-old, you stop seeing a human, you see an enemy, regardless of age. Okay, so how do you um, lose those feelings then generated by what you described before? And kind of turn that around into, well, you tell me, into what? Into something else. Yeah, so when I was 18 years old, I realized I made a big mistake that I didn't learn Hebrew in high school. I refused to learn Hebrew because it was the language of the enemy. And I was very angry. Um, And at 18, I understood if I don't speak Hebrew in Jerusalem where I grew up, you not going to have work, you're not going to have school, you're not going to have anything. And I went to study Hebrew in a place called Ulpan, which is where Jewish immigrants learn Hebrew. And I was the only Palestinian in that classroom. And it was one of the most terrifying and 
defining moments also of my life. Uh, you know, I was 18 years old at that point. You were asking how can somebody hate an eight years old? I was 18. I didn't speak a word in Hebrew. I lived 20 minutes away from West Jerusalem, 20 minutes walking, not driving. And I've never had a conversation like a normal conversation with a Jewish person. We never seen each other eye to eye. I've met some nice Israelis, even at checkpoints. But, you know, somebody with a gun is not someone you have dialogue with. And this was my Hebrew class was the same first moment that we really connected and in any way. And it was in the big, like, I remember my first day, my teacher realized I was feeling uncomfortable. I didn't want to be there. I was like, everyone here probably hates me and think, why is this Arab here? And she walked to me and greeted me in Arabic and said, how are you? With a big smile. And that was the first time I had an Israeli treat me like a human being. And it was from there that I started realizing how ignorant we are of each other, how we all uh, separated. I think Martin Luther King Jr. has this uh, quote that he takes, we hate each other because we fear each other or fear each other because we don't know each other because we are separated because we don't communicate. And in that Hebrew class, I got to hear Israelis for the first time talk about Palestinians having rights, which I've never heard an Israeli say that before. I got to learn about the fear that they have. I got to learn about the Holocaust, which I knew nothing about. I got to hear about their families. I realized we have so much more in common than actually divide us and how ridiculous this whole issue of us versus them. And I moved from the us versus them, Israelis versus Palestinians, to us versus them, those of us who believe in peace and justice and those who don't yet. And that became my my focus in life is how do you bring down walls that divide us, walls of ignorance, walls of fear, walls of hatred. Um, and it's it's very hard because those are much harder to bring down than actual physical walls. These are the walls that make us willing to do things that me and you will look at today and think it's incomprehensible. How can we do that to each other? Because you think of the other as, like I said, not a human. So that's quite a transformation. I'm thinking back to when I was 18. It was a while ago, and um, I probably thought I knew it all, but, I, I, you know, it's still pretty young. So that's quite a change there. And and that what sets a new direction, a new course for you that w- would otherwise have been another direction, I, w- I would imagine. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I felt, to be honest, there, there's different parts of it, but one of the most redeeming for me is I felt when I was 10, I didn't, I, I thought I don't have a choice. The only choice I had is to hate, is to revenge. And I thought vengeance is really justice. I didn't realize that there is a difference between the two. And the difference is a thin line. Uh, But I also realized every time I chose to hate, I was being a slave to the person who killed my brother. He decided my course of life. I was doing my choices based on his choice. And that's very redeeming to know you don't control what other people do, but you do control how you respond to it. And so even in what's happening today in Gaza and the West Bank, I always say we don't control what the others do. We always choose which direction we take. And when you choose reactionary based on others' choices, how you respond, 
you are their slave. That's very well put. Okay, and and this is on both sides, right? Not just one uh, side, both yeah, sides. Uh, absolutely. I think I believe that we should choose nonviolence regardless of what others choose, and that it should be our way of, of resistance always. It's our way of dialogue. It's our way of working together. And when you do that, you open yourself up to so many others that would not have joined you otherwise. Can I put this to you? Because I, I wondered at the time, I mean, that whole thing that happened October 7th, you know, it, it looked pretty grisly. It was horrible. I know there's a lot of noise around it and uh, there's still questions being asked about how it came about, etc. But it was a horrible thing. Right. And the response was shock and awe. And that was probably predictable in the Hamas. People probably knew that would be the result. And Israel kind of <laughs> went that way. Um, could it have been different if there was some, not turning the other cheek, but a response that was, I mean, I think Elon Musk said a few words a week or so ago about, you know, an epic act of kindness rather than an epic act of aggression in response. Yeah. Um, one wonders what sort of results that would have produced and where we would be now, what, eight weeks further down the track and thousands, tens of thousands dead. Remember, I told you in my Hebrew class, my teacher came and did that act of kindness, a very, very simple act of smiling and telling me welcome, and how ha that was the setting stone of me changing my life. Acts of kindness in general have such a power to them that are unimaginable. But going to October 7th, I, I agree with you. It's horrific. I, I have a friend who was killed on October 7th, an Israeli friend who was killed, uh, a peace peacemaker. Um, I know people who uh, who were uh, kidnapped. I have friends of family and family of friends who were kidnapped. Um, so I understand significantly the pain of Israelis and what they went through and my Jewish friends. Um I don't think the response that Israel did has made anything better, not now and not in the long term. The the assumption that war brings security is, is absolutely uh, bogus. This is what Hamas operated on, is that Israel understands only force and violence. And the theory that Israel is operating on right now is maximum damage, Palestinians, Hamas, Gaza, only understand violence and force. And for the last 75 years, this has been the way. And it hasn't brought any peace. It hasn't brought any security. And to me, it's incredible that we keep living in this cycle. You know, this is not the first time between Hamas and Israel having a conflict. It's, I think, the 16th. I lost count. Yeah. And what has it brought to Israel? What has it brought to Palestinians? Do we really think the kids who are going through this are going to grow up being peacemakers, the kids in Gaza who are seeing their families being killed, who have seen so much damage or displaced? Will this really lead to safer Israel after? I have no doubts that the answer is no. And, and likewise, those people who lived in these villages and these towns and these kibbutzim, in the south of Israel, are they going to be now more likely to want Palestinians to have freedom, to have a state, to have our own country? Most likely not. No way, no. 
So we just set ourselves in some ways back in time. But I would say the act of kindness is not October, should have just happened October 7th, 8th, 10th, 15th, and us figuring out. I think the problem is we waited so long. Right. We, yeah. we get comfortable with a status quo, a status quo that allows us to live in a reality that is not sustainable, allow us to live under the occupation, allow us to live uh, with, you know, regular terror, uh, regular acts of violence from Palestinians, from Israelis. It became normal. And both of us normalized that and became okay with it. It became the status quo. We we live our lives as normal as we see those things, as we see injustice. And what needed to happen was before October 7th. And unfortunately, in some ways, we are all complicit in what happened. We allowed this. We saw Netanyahu strengthening Hamas, and we said nothing about him. That Israelis as well. He was public about how supporting Hamas will destroy the two-state solution. He was voted after. The people in Gaza were not getting enough supplies and food and so on, and Hamas was getting bags full of cash. This is absurd. From the Israeli, allowed to go in through the Israeli government? That was just ridiculous that that this is a reality. And then we wonder why we got to where we are today. Uh, It's no surprise to me. Is there any sort of hope when this is like a, a machine that just keeps on, you know, <laughs> perpetuating? Um, I, I pick, uh, I'm picking now that there are thousands of youths, you know, go back to the age that you were talking about all those years ago, who are hating big time in a fresh way um, on the Israelis. So th- there's no goodwill there. And you know, there are people to replace the ones they kill. It's it, it you can see that. Um, and there's no there's no way of this is like an endless cycle. Is there any hope to put a circuit break? Who who will it take to to circuit break this, do you think? I think there's always hope. And if we give up on hope, we allow ourselves to live in despair, the the results are even much worse than but that. it is looking pretty grim. It does look very grim. Um, I have a friend, his name is Mausinon, whose parents were killed on October 7th, an Israeli guy. And he told me, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and he said, uh, I, I was I was telling him, it took me eight years to get to where he is. Yeah, and right. I was like, yeah. how, how are you doing this work? How are you speaking about peace two, three weeks, four weeks after your parents were killed? Like, I don't comprehend that. And he said... Yeah. Hmm. You know, you call out for water when you are in the desert. You cry out for water when you are in the desert, when you really lack water, when you're so thirsty. And we are right now in the desert, and we call out for peace because we are in war. So yes, it doesn't look good, but that means we need to work even harder. That means our voices need to be louder. That means we need people like you bringing those voices to the media, which doesn't happen much. Those are not the voices. My voice, Inon's voice, are not the ones that are on mainstream media all the time. We need those voices to be louder. I think a lot of people don't even understand that there is an alternative. They feel no, they don't. You're you're right. It's the only choice because so- um, the 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 um, infosphere is dominated by only one way of reporting it, and that is binary, one side or the other. 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you, if you're watching some of the Western media, Israeli media, you don't really see much of Palestinian suffering. You don't see anything going on in Gaza. You don't, there's minimizing of it. There's like, well, yeah. it's not time to feel sympathy for those people. The terrorists, yeah. But if you watch also Arabic television, to be fair, you're not going to see much about what happened October 7th. You'll see a lot of denial of what happened that, well, it wasn't really that bad. And so when you live in this binary, it's either or. Our role for those who want to push, push for hope is to say, here's an alternative route. Here's a third road. Here's something we can do together. And it is possible. The fact that I'm a friend with Inon, a guy whose parents were killed on October 7th. We can talk right after. We texted two days after. I called him a week or two after. We've been talking back and forth. The fact this can happen, the fact that my friend Udi Gorin, whose um, cousin is now in Gaza, who's, who's been, who was uh, taken on October 7th, and that me and him a week after did a live event did a webinar where had hundreds of people together and talked about how much we care and love each other and support each other. That gives me hope. We're not the majority, not even by any stretch of imagination. But maybe I draw I draw on some hope from 1973 war and 1978-79 Egypt-Israel agreement. The 1973 war was devastating to both Egyptians and Israelis. And yet five years later, they were able to sign a peace agreement. And some would say without that horrific war, we would not have had a peace agreement. And I wonder, as horrific as these times are, if they could lead us to get to the point of understanding violence will never work. We are not going anywhere. Palestinians are not going anywhere. Israelis are not going anywhere. Let's find a way to live together. Let's figure out where these lines going to go. I honestly, I know we say often it's complicated, and yes, there's complication. It's not that complicated. There is a way to make it. There's many names for that agreement. It's almost there. It just needs some will and some leadership. And unfortunately, that's our biggest tragedy right now is we have horrific, horrific leadership. Not Netanyahu, not Abu Mazen, not Hamas. I don't see any of these guys interested or know how to get us to where we need to be. Wow. Okay. Um, because like I mentioned before, surely Hamas knew, the military and political wing, knew that uh, an attack like that would encourage the full fury, shock and awe response from the IDF. There's just no question. Their history is there. Their rhetoric's always there. They yeah. will do that. And that could bring great suffering to, you know, non-combatants, let me put it that way, civilians, and that seems to be happening, though I see the Israelis dispute those figures. Anyway, so they knew that would happen. Though, in speaking, you know, the comparison you're making to 1973, it has forced a function in a way, because for the first time in ages, um, two-state solution was starting to be mentioned and talked about again. Um, that's there. Uh, people are starting to realize, it seems to me, that this is like an endless cycle that it doesn't matter which side you're on, there's no end to it, and it's just the meat grinder of people getting destroyed right. all, all the way. So I guess what I'm trying to think here is even though this is a horrible thing that happened, it has, like I say, forced some sort of function, whether it leads to anything is another thing, but 
it has brought it in front of everybody again in a very brutal and uh, and and tough way, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think, I mean, we're still into it, so it's hard to really imagine where where this is going to end. I I have a strong doubt that Israel knows how to really beat Hamas right now. I think it's so they could know, be a stalemate, which is an even sort of more weird situation because it just puts yeah. things in a in a holding pen. I mean half of half pretty much most of people in the north of Gaza are now in the south of Gaza, which means you have about two million people in an extremely, extremely dense place. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you're gonna use military force to be able to go in and destroy Hamas would be the, the like we you know right now we are at about sixteen thousand people killed. I think that number would go to like over 100, 150,000 if Israel was to go in uh, and do it as they want is completely eradicate Hamas. I don't honestly don't see that happening um, as long as Egypt won't open the borders and let people out. Um, you're going to have those two million people there. And now we're going to have hunger uh, problems. I saw today the lines for food. It is, you're talking about 10,000 people lining up trying to get bread. Uh, this eventually will backfire. I don't think it's a sustainable policy or war strategy. Um, I think Israel made a mistake from the beginning of how they operated this war. It, mm. it wasn't strategic. It was how damage, how much damage can we inflict? It was an emotional sort of tantrum response, really, wasn't it? I, I, I think so. I don't think it really was thought through. And Israel had so much sympathy on October 7th. And I think there were many, many ways that this could have gone that would have been different, uh, even from Arab countries. I mean, you had leaders of Arab countries um, openly speak about their sympathy and their support even of Israel. That That's now is is not there. Uh, it's it was there were too many uh, mistakes in this war and the you know, the damage, the life of tens of thousands of people that are mostly civilians, the pictures yeah. and videos coming out of all these kids, you can't, you really can't keep doing that and expect a victory. And even if you are to eradicate Hamas, and this is often my argument with my Israeli friends, let's say Israel succeeds somehow at a minimum civilian life. As long as the life in Gaza and in the West Bank are not changing, and as long as we don't have a real settlement, something worse than Hamas will start. And I remind my Israeli friends of 1982. Israel went into South Lebanon and occupied South Lebanon for a while, um, kicked out the Palestinian factions. That's why they went there, because they wanted to get rid of the Palestinian factions that were fighting against Israel from South Lebanon. What did we end up with? You know what organization was established right around that time, 1982? Hezbollah. Hmm. Hezbollah didn't exist before. The presence of Israel in South Lebanon gave Hezbollah so much power, so much strength, so much legitimacy, that it was much worse for Israel than the Palestinian factions. And that's what I keep saying about Gaza and the West Bank. Sure, you can get maybe rid of Hamas. Somehow, let's say you are successful then what is going to replace Hamas? Yep. Unless there is a peace settlement, an actual solution that brings 
security that brings freedom to Palestinians, just like it does to Israelis, this is not over. Even if you win this battle, you don't really win without a settlement. Is um, Netanyahu and his government, the people in it, and I guess leadership of IDF, etc., are they the sort of people who are capable of saying, and I'm, I'm trying to think of how this could have gone differently after such a horrific attack. No one's you know, saying that it wasn't horrific and it's horrible. You can acknowledge that. You can say that in very strong terms. But you could also say, instead of going crazy and, and, and blowing the place to pieces, you could say, okay, we've got some serious thinking to do at about this moment. We're going to find out who did this and, you know, full force of the law. And people understand that too, because justice is justice. But say, okay, you know, we've got to do something here. We've, we can't have this go on and take a, a pause, maybe a day or two or three, and then come out saying, well, okay, we need to resolve this. We need to start talking about, you know, a state. We need to talk about how this can work. We need to seriously do it. Um, you know, we are the ones who, who can change history here. It seems to me, and I'm not a very bright person and I have no experience in this sort of stuff, but that would have been like hallelujah to so many people. It would have created such a great opportunity. Now, if that's thrown back in your face, yeah, then you can get more grumpy and probably harder in your attitude. But it was never even attempted, so we'll never know. But, uh, I mean, surely I that's the way you do it, right? I don't think Netanyahu would ever consider a two-state solution. Uh, his pitch right now to his own party of why they shouldn't get rid of him is he's the only person able to stop a two-state solution these days. But we know that that's not going to run long-term. It can't. I, I agree. I think it's about how many of us have to keep getting killed before we get to an end of it and have a solution. But he's running his whole career was against the two-state solution. The fact that he said it once or twice for lip service, he's not for it. But you look at the government in general, you have Bingvir and you have Smutrich. These are hardcore ideologues who are against two-state solutions. So what you're saying is idealistically what should have happened. I, I know it's, yeah, ideal. Yeah, the ideal. chances of that happening with that government is so small. Even today, you know, okay, damage has been significant. Can we take a step backward? You used, you you did revenge. Can we take a step backward? Yeah. And Even what now. What we yeah. do to assure that we don't get something worse in the future? I don't see that, unfortunately, happening right now with, with these leadership. Uh, I think that's a failure we have, is a failure of leadership. Um, what about pressure from other um, quarters, like the US, for, for example, Biden, I think it's sort of mumbled under his breath, two-state solution, uh, before they shuffled him off the stage at some point. So, And, and that's what was my point, that you're hearing it being said again. Uh, you know, the um, Israel is basically... Um, Underwritten by I think people States. have to realize that the reason I, I'm not buying what Biden is saying. Okay, yeah, uh, well, fair mainly enough. Mainly because for the last three years, the Palestinian issue was not even in the top 20 priorities he had on foreign affairs. They were bragging a week before October 7th how they were able to pacify the issue of Palestine. Um, 
it is not an issue that has been a priority or is a priority, except that they need to kind of, uh, I think for, for Biden, he's losing a lot of votes in the United States right now. As things stand, it's very unlikely he would win the next elections because of what's happening in Israel and in Gaza. Um, and he needs to do some PR to make it sound that he cares about what's going on. But overall, I, I really don't think, you know, we're talking about bad leadership in Israel and Palestine. I think the U.S. is is complicit. I, I like what Barack Obama recently said. He's like, what have we done to make this end? And And Barack Obama did a lot more than Biden. He said, I still wonder if I have blood in my hands of what's going on now, if yeah. I could have maybe tried harder. Biden didn't try at all. Like, this is not even... Well, Biden was number two to Obama, and um, presumably they'd talk, but okay. Yeah, Yeah. uh, you're right. Presumably they do, and uh, I'm not sure Obama is uh, convincing uh, Biden. You can tell there is already a difference in opinion between the two on what's going on and how to move forward. Okay, um, so we've got listeners that, um, you know, cover all the the basis that you'd think um, pro-Israel. We've had um, uh, pro-Palestine, of course, and we've had demonstrations on our streets in support of Palestinians. And then there are the people who are sort of like looking above it all, looking down, trying to work out um, what they should think about it. So what would you say to our listeners, um, you know, hardened on one side or the other? Um, You got a message for them? Yeah, I would I would say what I said in the beginning. Don't think of this as us versus them. Don't think this as Israel versus Palestine, even as Arabs versus Jews, Muslims versus Jews. Think of this as what can we do to bring peace and security and freedom for everyone who lives in Israel and in Palestine. Don't make this an antagonistic movement. Uh, it pains me when I see anti-Semitic stuff at the pro-Palestinian rally. I think this is really going to be there. And I've had friends who have been also Palestinian and Muslim friends who have been getting Islamophobic and anti-Muslim attacks. Uh, And both of these shouldn't exist. And it is really important, especially for those who live abroad, to not allow our conflict to promote hatred in Australia, in New Zealand, in America, in in Europe, and this is happening too much. I see, I see radical racist people who are using our conflict to promote their racism, and we need, while we supporting an end to the war, a release of the hostages, release of uh, people who are uh, innocent, women, children, so on. As we doing all of that. We need to also make sure that we don't um, we don't become a pawn in this game and don't become agents of hatred. So yes, we need the end of the war. We need an end of ceasefire. We need a peace agreement. We need all these people to be free. But we also don't want to make it a hatred thing. Uh, I don't really see a difference between my Israeli friends, my Palestinian friends, my Jewish, my Muslim friends. We are working for the same cause. And the religion or ethnicity is is not the only thing that defines us. We have more than one identity. And that identity that bases only on what I was born, that's not the only identity I have. I, I like to believe some of us, at least, 
look at peace as a more important identity than even our national, religious, or ethnic identities. Well, it's been a really good chat, really good to talk with you and hear what you had to say. Um, we've kind of uh, hit time. Anything else you want to say? Anything we've missed uh, in talking about this? I, th- I think we we covered uh, we covered most of it. Uh, I just pray that uh, that next time we talk, things will be a little bit on the hopeful side, and maybe we'll be discussing how a peace agreement uh, can happen. Well, it's always darkest before the dawn, right? <laughs> it, it absolutely is. Okay, Aziz Abu Sarah, thank you very much for coming on our radio station. All the best to you. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Loving what you're hearing? Well, the establishment hates it. And right now, they're conjuring up new ways to try and censor RCR. To ensure you never miss a beat of the hard-hitting news you've come to know and love, make sure you're on the RCR mailing list. Get connected now at realitycheck.radio forward slash email.